Hello and welcome to the Almost Delight Podcast. My name is Aiden. My name is Audra. Spooky edition. <laughs> this is the depression edition. <gasps> because yes. it's in the depression. That's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. So I'll add my disclaimer in now. Yes. Hello, this is Aiden from the Almost Delight Podcast. <laughs> this episode is going to be, I'm assuming, even more graphic than the last one. Hey. The last one was graphic. Had to put a warning on it. This one, I have a segment in it. It's terrible. Made me sad. It's a huge bummer. <laughs> He's already, oh, yeah. you're already depressed and look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so I'm sorry, but it's Halloween. Okay. It's ready? Okay. And there's, yeah. there's no music in this one because it seems highly inappropriate. Yeah. We wouldn't be like, you know, <laughs> this kid died. Here's the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. It's not very, uh, it doesn't fit. No, not with this. It probably didn't fit in the last one either, but whatever. Okay. So we are going to talk about, um, this has no music in it at all whatsoever. We're going to talk about Albert Dyer, who I am claiming, I'm making a lot of claims this October. <laughs> I, I know. I created a curse. I think this is LA's first serial killer. And this okay. is a bold statement. And I'm probably wrong, but I don't care. Cause I've okay, been well, first of all, defi- what is the definition of a serial killer? Oh, wow. Thanks for asking. So a serial killer has to be three or more people at separate mm. times okay mm-hmm. so this case when you look at it one off it's just a multiple murder because it's three kids we're going to talk about that he murdered but right. i think he might have done some one something prior or maybe at another time that nobody knew about which would make him yeah technically I, was, I was thinking about that okay so first of all what are we doing first are we telling this little story about this guy first and then elaborating on yes because i do, i don't think this is a the only thing he did too because he can't do some shit like that no, no. excuse so my language and then just have it be like a one time th- your first thing oh it's my first time right, right. so let's get into this it. okay okay i know you're gonna get all amped up and <laughs> get off track because you're all mad <laughs> <laughs> okay so on june 26 1937 it was a very hot saturday in inglewood california three girls sisters melba and madeline everett ages nine and seven and their friend Jeanette Stevens aged eight took a picnic to Sentinella Park a, f- a few blocks away from their homes and that um, became a bad day when they didn't come home for dinner their parents called the police and that evening police began to, um, the search for them and by morning there was about 500 volunteers that were looking for the girls um, so if you're wondering, back in the 30s, people just let their young children run around all day with no parental supervision. Right. That was a normal thing to do, even though it sounds terrible. And this is the reason why we don't do it today is because stuff like this started happening more and more frequently, especially into the 80s and 90s. Um, so cops began pulling at that point in known creeps who kind of frequented the par- park and interviewing them to try to quickly find these girls. Um, Melba and Madeline's 11-year-old sister, Olive, who was at the park that day, um, was brought into the police station to look at photos of known sex offenders, which I am assuming gave her nightmares for the rest of her life. (laughs) Um, Some local boys that played in the park all the time said a man named Eddie the Sailor often invited them to look for rabbits, and they would always decline. And Eddie was a known trickster among these boys, and one of his favorite tricks that he did was to bend his wrist all the way back to his forearm, and apparently he was, like, double-jointed. So that was kind of a a sticking point that people were looking for. Only pedophiles can do that? (laughs) 
I'm just kidding. Any, of course, anybody can do that. It just seems very. You're, why would you do that? We're gonna get a bunch of double jointed people yelling at us. <laughs> yeah, no. So I just upset at the double jointed community. Right. <laughs> so immediately, immediately a radio broadcast went out for a man named Othell Strong, and he was age 22, and he was a convicted felon. He was actually out on bond at this point um, from disturbing a minor offense. So they, he was a strong suspect just because hence his last name strong um because of the offense that he was out on when you go through news clips of this time the amount of men who are offending little girls is horrifying i don't know what was going on at the time oh my god it's like page after page after page i'm like what is happening and they were like would give them admittedly give them wine let them go it wasn't it was like just a thing that people got away with it was crazy um that made me that makes me think like What's up with it now? Did people change, or did the societal rules change? And well, now dudes I are think just suppressing their need to. I mean, you think a hun- drink up little wasn't very girls. L- it wasn't very long ago that you were getting married at like fifteen and sixteen years old. So to them, if you I, could, I guess people didn't live as long, but still, there's a big difference between like a seventeen-year-old and even like a fourteen-year-old. Well, I know. Do you know what I mean? That's a whole other podcast. Okay. So they were convinced it was this guy strong. So. And then they bring in Olive again, and she identifies Strong as the man that she did see with these girls in the park. Um, so Olive said also that she recognized him and that he also tried to lure her away on the Friday before the girls disappeared, so the day before, by t- asking her to go hunt rabbits, too, and she said no. Wait, so I'm confused. Is What's the guy's name? Eddie Strong? Well, the guy, the, the guy that was in the park that all the kids were seeing that were they were kind of creeped out by, he was always kind of hanging around kids at the park. His He claimed his name was Eddie the Sailor. That's how they knew him. He would call himself Eddie the Sailor. And his thing was the rabbit thing? His thing was the rabbit thing and bending his elbow, his wrist back. So this guy, okay. Othell Strong, was just a guy that they were like, well, this guy just recently got out on, um, on a mine. He's out on bond, and he was messing with kids that's why he was arrested so we know he just got right out so let's go track him down and see if he's the guy they showed all of a picture of him and she's like oh yeah that's the dude but at this point they have absolutely no evidence that it's him they're just assuming it's him because of his record and olive said that's the guy so um the girls had been promised an afternoon of rabbit hunting from the man in the park the day before apparently and he had asked them to meet him the next day i guess um and other people had identified strong as well so there was three adults and a 12 year old girl who were all all like yeah that's the guy he was been at the park a kid seven-year-old kenneth henderson identified strong as being eddie and said that he had asked him to go hunt rabbits and that he had a car which was like a new piece of information and he also said on top of the wrist thing that he liked to do tricks like make maps and tie knots. So that be kind of came like oh, a thing yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I read about the tying knots thing. So so at this point, um, on top of the manhunt going on, a crowd of fifteen hundred men gathered in front of the Inglewood City Hall threatening to lynch apparently anybody. They were just angry. Yeah, and any suspect out. they were gonna lynch. Right. They were just gonna lynch. Lynching was a big deal, which I'll talk about in a second back then that everyone was yeah. in a lynching mode. So the district attorney, Fitz, is his last name, called it, quote, the most fiendish crime in the whole crime annals of L.A. County. So the day before the girls went missing, as I said, they were asked to go on this rabbit hunting thing. And Jeanette, 
um, the friend who went missing asked an attendant at the park swimming pool for a piece of rope. When asked what it was for, Jeanette said, Eddie the sailor wants to take us rabbit hunting in the hills. The pool attendant didn't have a rope, so she sent the girl to a park supervisor who gave her a cord that was used for bailing papers. Now, I'm not really sure why this isn't a red flag to everyone at the park where it's like, who's Eddie? Why are you going hunting? Whatever. But apparently it was just like, whatever, go get a rope. However, the rope that the girl was given was not the rope that killed the girls. So police eventually, when they ended up finding the girls and seeing, you know, what rope it was. So they kind of concocted this thing that Jeanette must have given the rope of the bailing, you know, paper rope to the murderer and he was like that's not a good enough rope go find another rope and they're thinking that she went off somewhere to find another rope so they were looking for somebody else who might have given this little girl a rope so they were kind of like reaching at straws at this point for anything um this is all by all the by the way in the papers before anyone's arrested so back then in the papers they would put anybody's name in the paper so if you're six seven three years old first name last name where you lived they they would put evidence in the paper like everything was in the oh, paper wow that's crazy okay so just keep that in mind so also in the paper they don't do that now do they no because of the history of all this because it obviously takes away from any kind of trial or anything because everybody knows everything so in also in the paper was a fact that a campfire that was near the bodies had some charred debris in it and it didn't say what kind of debris it was but it said there was a fire that was put out and there was some debris that had been burned in the fire and a man that lived close by said that he went to investigate a fire at one point up in the hills where the girls were eventually found because he was uh, afraid that it was going to spread. And he saw a man in a 1929 Ford leave the area, but the man didn't go any further to investigate the fire. He just took off. So that was another piece of evidence that they, the kids said Eddie the sailor had a car, and then this guy went to the area and found a guy with a car. So they're trying to piece all this stuff together. So Eddie was described um, by the boys in the park as a, quote, young Mexican-appearing fellow. And another man, local, said that they kind of saw in the area was part Indian, quote, Indian. And he was also a suspect. And there was a nationwide hunt for this guy at one point. And there was a picture in his paper, and it kept saying, like, part Indian, you know. But he wasn't even in the area at the time, so that kind of came just a, a total race thing, I think, of um, he simply had a sister that lived in Inglewood, and I think people were like, he's part Indian, he must have done it. So keep, <laughs> so keep in That's mind. That's so stupid, he's not even there. No, like, oh, he, he wasn't, wasn't even in the area at the time. So you got to keep in mind at this time, Inglewood, which is now prominently African-American, Hispanic neighborhoods, it was a predominantly was white. white neighborhood up until the yeah. 60s. So this was a heavily... What are you talking about? Yep. And our WhatsApp is, well, kind of. We yeah. didn't talk about Inglewood, but the area. So um, it was very, very white and kind of middle class, except during this kind of in the Depression. You know, it was kind of going downhill, but still a white neighborhood in the 30s during the Depression. And in fact, in the 1920s, Inglewood had a very strong Ku Klux Klan chapter that was in the area. And in 19... 22, just to give you an example of how strongly white this area was, there was a Klan killing of a bootlegger and a police officer who were killed. They went after the, this guy's family, so two people died, a police officer and the bootlegger. 37 Klan members were arrested and all received a not guilty verdict, totally let go. And Whoa. it was, uh, it was uh, later on, the LAPD said it was a total travesty. Wait, 
what race was the police officer they killed? I don't, I don't know. I didn't go that far into it. I think were, it was were just African Americans allowed to be police officers back then? No, no, no. He would have been white, but he probably might have gotten caught. You know, I mean, the, if the cops were trying to break it up or trying to arrest somebody, they were just in masks killing people. So, wow, that's crazy. I don't think there was a black police officer until the late '60s in the area. Wow, really? Yeah. So eventually, after like a month or so, these leads dried up, and the LAPD brought in Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, and sometimes his name is pronounced um, DeRiver because he's from New Orleans, and I think it's kind of an accent thing. But Dr. DeRiver, as I'll call him, had a medical degree from Tulane University in New Orleans. He's from New Orleans, Louisiana, Tulane's in Louisiana. He had an extensive background in working... um, in psychiatric hospitals. Um, He worked with Navy pilots during World War I with their mental health and as a medical examiner for veterans. And he had a ton of other positions. So he has a very strong mental health psychiatric background for that time. He came to California in 1932 and opened a medical office and he began working with the LAPD's probation department with criminal psychiatric cases in 1934. So when all this stuff kind of dried up in this you know these murders were so horrific they asked him to come in and help with anything that he could do so he went to go look at the girls bodies at the morgue and to get a profile this guy and went to go visit the the crime scene as well um and deriver profiled the killer as a a sadistic pedophile in his 20s who was single meticulous in appearance religious and remorseful he said he probably had a past record for annoying children and would probably frequent play areas and he said that he planned the crime and he knew the girls. So as more, so they went out again and looked for more suspects. And so at this point, because he said the guy was single, they picked up any bachelor. So it didn't matter if you had a record or not. They just picked up bachelors, interviewed them. They went back to the sex offenders again and they couldn't find anybody. And then after the, so the girls were found two days after they disappeared, which I'll kind of mention in a second, but during the search of this man Albert Dyer kind of fit the profile and kind of started getting on everybody's radar he was 32 so not 20 but he was in his early 30s he was married but he had no children he was somewhat religious and he worked as a crossing guard at the girls school so he absolutely Mm -hmm. knew who they were so he came on the radar of the police when he started acting strangely at the crime scene yep Albert had volunteered to be a part of the search the morning after the girls went missing so right away Uh, when four teenage boys from the Boy Scout troop that was helping um, find bodies, which is, I found something that they started doing the minute the Boy Scout troops were formed, like a gazillion years ago, they would go out searching for missing bodies, (laughs) which is so Yeah, I was really surprised when I read that. Yeah, that happened in another case I'm going to talk about later in the 20s too, so just very weird, I guess. It's just the thing that they did, send out a bunch of teenagers to find dead bodies. So they, so four Boy Scouts found the three girls down a ravine from each other in Baldwin Hills, and they were mutilated and strangled. Madeline was the f- uh, found first. She was face down with blood down her legs, and she was sprinkled with weeds in an attempt to hide her body. 30 feet down was her, from her was her sister Melba. She was face up, and, f- and then further down the hill was Jeanette, who was also face up, and her head was against a large rock. So between Madeline and Melba... Um, lay three pairs of the girl's shoes that were lined up in a row. Okay, so that's a weird, meticulous, bizarre thing. Yeah. When the bodies were discovered, Albert was 
standing right there. He became hysterically upset and made a huge scene, taking away kind of the importance of finding the girls. He started ordering everyone around to, quote, show respect to the bodies. He was kind of screaming it, which people found extremely odd. He also insisted on helping to remove the bodies, which should have been the police and coroner's only job. Um, And police did kind of interview him at the time because it was so odd, Um, but he gave an alibi and they cleared him as a suspect right away. So his behavior was odd, but they were like, you're fine, go ahead. A few days later, within the week, he showed up randomly at the police station, unsolicited, and, and told the police he knew why they wanted to interview him. So again, they were like, why are you here? And we did not ask you to come in and interview you. <laughs> what are you doing yeah. here? And then they were like, you know what? You're right, Albert. We do want to interview you. Have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what, buddy? Come on in. Come on in, dum-dum. Right Let's here. sit down. So eventually they found out that his alibi was actually false. Um, I did read another story that his wife had, she claimed that she told him to go to the police station um, because she had heard that they were looking for him, which I don't know if she was at the time covering for him or trying to sound like, you know, he wasn't raving mad or something. I don't know. Well, are you going to talk about the scrapbook? Yeah. I'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> yeah. So at first, Albert denied the killings even though he went in there yelling about it. And then um, with Derivers, Deriver's help, Dyer confessed. And Dyer said that he lured the girls into Baldwin Hills, into the Baldwin Hills gully with the promise of hunting rabbits, which was obviously a Depression-era game. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if they would eat them. They must, it must have been because it was the Depression that they were just, it was what you did hunting, for food, yeah. you know. By the way, um, oh, what was I about to say? Oh, no. What were you just talking about before the uh, the rabbits? Him luring the girls. And conf- his confession. His confession. Um, you know his false know. alibi. His false alibi. It was something you didn't mention. Oh no! <laughs> oh my God! I can't. That's okay. I'll Go keep ahead. going if you think about it. Okay. So, when he was trying to get them to do this rabbit hunting a- again, these kids were, you know, like as the boys said, "Don't come," you know. Um, the boy said no we can't go the girls initially said you know my our moms would not approve of this we can't go but he soon kind of gained their trust i don't not sure how he didn't say and then when they did show up um the next day he said they were in bright colored clothing they looked nice and fresh he was oddly weird about how they were dressed and described them and he said once they got to the woods he separated them one at a time and he started with Madeline. He took her away from the other girls, and he strangled her with his hands. And then to make sure she was dead, he tied a rope around her neck and strangled her again. Then he went and got Melba and repeated the process. Then he went and got Jeanette and started to repeat the pop process. But she fought back, he said, and she was clawing at the dirt, and she was trying to push him away. So, unfortunately, I ended up looking at the autopsy photos. And you can see from Jeanette's photo that this is true, that this part is true, which would not have been in the papers. None of the none of the autopsy stuff was in the paper. It just said the girls were were, um, you know, they don't mention sexual. They don't talk about rape and sexual assault back then. They say that the girls were murdered and that they were bothered or their their bodies were um, mistreated. You know, they, they kind of. Yeah, they said something about like him, like ra- like they use some ravishing, word, like, ravishing their body bodies yes. or something. Yeah. So they, they kind of skirt around actual sexual assault, rape kind of talk. Yeah. Back then, because that was probably to them, probably dirty words or, you know, whatever. Um. So if you look at Jeanette's photo, which I don't recommend doing, I don't know why I did it and I regret it. 
she actually is in a defensive position. Her arms are up and locked and like she's fighting. Off. I mean, she literally looks like she's trying to fight somebody off. It's horrifying. And she's very dirty. Her hands and everything in her arms are all filthy. Um, the other girls all have their arms at the sides and look very peaceful, like they had no idea what was going on. And hopefully they didn't. Um, he'd had post-mortem sex with Madeline, which he admitted. Um, but possibly they believe all three could have been um, post-mortemly sexually assaulted or raped and he admitted that he burned a handkerchief that he used to wipe the blood off his penis after the sex acts which would have been the debris found in the fire pit um, he then removed the girl's shoes placed them in a row and then started to pray over the bodies which became part of this like profile about him being somewhat religious and he said he was praying for his own soul so many feel he gave a false confession um, because he didn't want the police to turn him over to the angry, angry mob that was outside the courthouse waiting to be oh, lynching him. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that like way before mm -hmm. when I forgot is the way the way that they got him to confess was that right. they were basically like, well, you can go tell the mob that. And he was right. like, oh, hell no. The mom's literally yeah. going to rip like just tear him to shreds like a thousand right. people or something. Right. It was 1500 people. Yeah. So, yeah. So they interviewed him for 10 hours and then they said you know if you don't keep confessing we'll we'll send you to the the mob and he kind of freaked out <laughs> yeah which you can't do mm. now um but then in a shocking admission dyer's wife told police that albert had asked her to start a memory album and asked her to put all the news clippings about the girls in mm. it so he could keep it and look at it which i think in her brain is starting to click like hey maybe this isn't normal what's going on here um and now we know today, based off profiles and other, the hundreds of other serial killers we've caught, and um, that this is a very typical thing as serial killers to have a memento, keep news clippings, you know, this whole thing. So, um, Deriver's assistance in this case is possibly the first record in America of a behavioral expert assisting police in a psychological profile from a crime scene, according to Dr. Catherine Ramsland. Um, from an article I read in Psychology Today. So, the did you watch Mindhunter? That show Mindhunter on Netflix? Mm -mm. I think it's on Netflix. It's about the FBI's um, forming the, the like serial killer profile unit that they use now to find all yeah. these guys, and that was in the 70s. So, this guy, Deriver, was doing this back in the 30s and into the 20s. So, that she's saying from this article, this guy, this is the first, you know, time that they kind of use this, which isn't really acknowledged that much because the FBI kind of took it over in the 70s. But, it, you know, so it's kind of cool that that's what that guy was doing. So um, who was Albert Dyer? I had to, there's not really a Wikipedia page for him, which you can find, you know, he's just kind of on Murderpedia or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, so I kind of had to do some digging. Um, in like his family stuff on connections that I have and found out a little bit about him just because I was curious. He was born in Indian Lake, New York in 1905 and that's upstate New York. He was the youngest of four kids. He had two older sisters and an older brother. His older brother was named Lee but Albert was a junior so his dad's name was Albert Dyer as well and Albert was Albert Dyer Jr. So I'm not sure why Lee didn't get the junior status. Um, so I don't know if junior was from a different man, because sometimes that happened back then, mm. where, 
you don't really say that the kid's a different father or, you know, because usually the oldest son is the junior. I'm not sure what's going on there. It was just kind of odd. His dad was a laborer and he did odd jobs. The mom didn't work. So they sound like they were, you know, kind of on the, the lower income area. I did find an article about an Albert Dyer from upstate New York that ended up going to prison for arson. And I believe it was his dad, but I can't confirm it, but I did find it. So I'm wondering if that's why Albert ended up leaving New York and kind of coming out west is because I don't think his family life was very good. Mm. So Albert met Vesta Isabella Hohenger, (laughs) H-O-H-E-N-G-G-E-R, in San Francisco in 1930, where they lived for eight years before getting married on June 6, 1935. They lived, she said they lived as man and wife, but they weren't officially married until two years before the murders. And they had uh, moved to Inglewood about two years before, you know, this whole thing with the the girls had happened. So she said they had lost two babies. They were trying to have kids, um, but they couldn't. So that is why she believes that he didn't do it at first. She was like, well, we love children. He would never have done this to children. So she was believed he was innocent up until the trial. And then when she sat through the trial, she absolutely was like, this guy killed these kids. No questions. She ended up moving after the trial up north to where, because she was from Napa, and she ended up living in Sonoma the rest of her life, and she never remarried or anything. She just kind of lived out the rest of her life. Wow. Um, so Albert was officially arrested on July 4th. Happy Independence Day. <laughs> um, he was questioned day and night for two days and then sent to be examined by two different, psych- or, sorry, four different psychiatrists. They all deemed him sane for trial, but said that he was, quote, feeble-minded. So that kind of came into play after he was convicted that the false confessions and that he was feeble-minded, meaning he didn't understand, you know, the coercion that was going on and they were pressuring him. And so they shouldn't have been able to take the confession from him. He confessed on two or three different occasions, depending on what you read, that he killed the girls. Um, He was charged with three first-degree murders. And he arrived at San Quentin on September 5th, 1937. And I found his prison ID card, which was kind of eerie. Um, he had a tattoo of an eagle and the, the USA, like letters USA on his right arm. And on his left arm, he had a heart with the words Isabella and love on it. He had a scar on his right eye, right to the right of his right eye. And he had a scar to the right of his lower lip, both that it said from cuts of some kind. And his prison number was 60804. I couldn't find any military records for him at all that would confirm that maybe he was a sailor. And that's why he was kind of going by this Eddie the Sailor thing, if it was him that was doing that. So he had no Navy or military background that I could find online at all. Um, So I'm not really sure. The Eagle and the USA thing kind of led me to believe that he might have been in the military because that seems very military-esque kind well, of tattoos having, to me. having a tattoo back then, right? Yeah. A- and a tattoo of <coughs> something about the United States. Yeah, but I couldn't find it. It doesn't mean it didn't exist. I just couldn't find it in the stuff that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, so based on um, Deriver's help with um, D- uh, Dyer's profile with the LAPD, they actually ended up creating the Sex Offense Bureau headed by a deriver. And again, that is kind of a precursor to the 1970s kind of FBI profiling. Um, And deriver 
headed that and then ended up becoming very famous for working on the Black Dahlia case, which I don't know if you've heard of that case, but mm-hmm. is one of the most notorious unsolved murders and horrific murders in L.A. And he, the guy that he um, just briefly thought did it um, was never convicted, and it ended up being such a high-profile case that it, it kind of ruined uh, Deriver's career, and he ended up getting death threats and kind of going into hiding at one point from an wow. article I read about him. So the L.A. public defender saw a stay of execution for Dyer, but the governor at the time declined, and he was eventually hung or hanged, I guess, on in San Quentin on September 16, 1938. The Riverside Daily Breeze Press described his last moments as, quote, Dyer dropped through the trap at 10.03 a.m. and was pronounced dead 13 minutes later. He was calm when taken from the death cell near the execution chamber and walked unassisted to the gallows. Dyer was the second to last person to die by hanging in California and the last one from L.A. to be, the, you know, because they, they used to have hangings in Los Angeles at the sheriff's office right there at the sheriff's department. Wow. And they would just do it right there. But um, there were so many vigilante groups in, L- in Los Angeles at the time in the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, that a lot of sheriffs would get murdered after they hung somebody because a vigilante group would come in and murder the sheriff for some reason. So they ended up having to move all the executions up to San Quentin. So it's just a little sidebar <laughs> about executions. That's wild. Mm-hmm. So Pamela Everett, who was the sister's niece, um, who became a lawyer and journalist, she believes that Dyer was the wrong guy. And she has a book called Little Shoes, The Sensational Depression-Era Murders That Became My Family Secret. So she doesn't think that he was the right guy. Really? Uh, yeah, but I didn't really go into it too much. Um, I didn't want to get off track. Yeah, okay, well. She thinks it's one of the other guys that they kind of saw at the beginning. The guy Strong, the Indian, the guy they said was an Indian because he bit off somebody's ear. She thought he was violent, but he wasn't in the area. So I didn't really kind of connect the dots there, but... You know, yeah. I, I, to be fair, I didn't read that much about it, so maybe she does have a point. I'm not sure. So I'm going to go into another case briefly, and then I'm going to show you, tell you why I think this guy Dyer might have killed somebody earlier um, in his life. So another famous case in L.A. was the Martin sisters. It was a 1924 double murder. Nina Martin, aged eight, and her sister Mary, or sorry, sister May Martin, aged 12, went missing in Baldwin Hills near Centella Park, exactly the same area. Yep. On August 23rd, 1924, a Saturday, same thing. The sisters had gone to visit their grandmother who lived three blocks away, and they didn't stay long with their grandmothers, and they left between 6.30 and 7 p.m. that evening, and they never came home. The girls' bodies weren't found until months later on February 4th by, again, a teenage boy. The bodies were lying a few feet apart from each other, um, covered with weeds, one girl face up, one face down, and one shoe was missing. And there was only skeletal remains left in their clothing, so they never could really determine the cause of death. So literally sounds almost identical to our other case that we just talked about. The main suspect for about a month in their disappearance was their father, who lived in Washington State. But he and his mother had divorced eight years earlier, um, and people claimed to have seen him in the area six to eight days prior to the girl's disappearance. And he was interviewed multiple times, but it was finally proven that he was in Utah when the girls disappeared. So that was kind of a month wasted on the dad. Mm. Another suspect that was named was a man that w- ended up in the psych ward at an L.A. hospital who said he killed the girls. 
so they brought in a bunch of Nina and May's school friends um, for some weird reason to the psych ward to view the guy and identify him I, I don't know if these girls thought they might have seen might have might recognize somebody and be like yeah that guy has been hanging around I don't know why they brought them that but they brought him to the psych ward had them meet this dude and then they were like we have no idea who this guy is but again maiming little children for life by looking at creeps is not a good thing so the guy that was eventually convicted and died by hanging for this crime was named as S.C. Stone and he wasn't even on the police radar until a 13 year old girl escaped from his car after he made quote made her do improper things with him he, he had lured her into the car, took her away, did a bunch of stuff to her, and she ended up, like, busting out of his car and running away and then went to the, straight to the police. So kudos to her. Um, he was 54 at the time and picked up the um, girl on Washington Boulevard close to where the Martin girls had disappeared. So Stone then appears, you know, eventually he's, like, in jail awaiting all this kind of stuff to happen, and he's never admitted that he did it, but he has this cellmate who whose name was A.H. Floyd, who was a police judge. He worked in Culver City with the police department somehow. A lot of people called him Judge A.H. Floyd, so I'm not sure what a police judge is, but he worked for the police department in some capacity. And he was in jail for misusing police funds. So he, but he buddies up to Stone and tells his buddies in the police department, hey, I'm going to get this guy to confess. And can I get out of jail if I get this guy to confess? So they're like, yeah, man, go for it. So over a course of period time, you know, on a couple of different occasions when he talks to Stone, <coughs> he claims that Stone confessed to him and told him the whole story about how he killed these girls. And he wrote it all down, claiming that he was asking questions and Floyd was answering. So almost like an interview process. And then he gave it to the police and they basically, they used all that in court and Floyd, um, said this was true and stone was like this literally never happened this is bs so stone claimed in this confession to floyd his cellmate that he lured the girls into his apartment with candy he said that somehow they were kind of roaming his apartment building and he saw them and lured him into his apartment with candy said he strangled them and held their bodies for a month before burying him in a shallow grave in baldwin hills <coughs> very close to where the other girls in 37 were found and police say this, oh, this is probably why we never found the girls during our extensive search of the area, because they looked for the girls again. They had the Boy Scouts come out. They had hundreds of people searching the area, and they never found the bodies, okay, until like six months later. So the police are saying, well, that makes sense why we didn't find the bodies, because he was keeping them in his apartment. Now, no one ever claims to smell anything. How did he move the bodies? And, you know, the whole thing makes no sense. Stone denied it all, and then during the trial, they bring out this rouge box, which is a makeup kind of compact, and a button, and they said that they found it in Stone's home when they arrested him. But the day before, in the court documents, these two items hadn't been linked to the girls yet. So miraculously, the next day, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, these are the girls. So that's a little suspicious. And then supposed witnesses that saw the said they saw the girl stop by a candy store and were seen at a Dodge Roadster that was owned by Stone and that they they had on two occasions seen him driving around with the girls that night in his night watchman uniform because he was a West Adams patrol night watchman and so this is all kind of like 
people are piecing this together from newspaper clippings for this six, you know, it just, none of it makes any sense to me. <coughs> Sorry. So, and then they said the next day that they saw Stone and this guy Shorty Smith in the areas where the bodies were found. Smith was acting nervous and they said that they were supposedly burying the bodies at that point, even though it was the next day. And in his confession, he said he had him for a month. So nothing's making sense. Like nothing's adding up. There's like two separate stories going on here. But they convicted him anyway. They hung him. End of story. So my theory is Albert Dyer was in California when he was 19, which would have been in 1924. And he could have possibly murdered the girls. And that was maybe his first thing or maybe not. And then he fled to San Francisco for those eight years. And then he found an article about two missing sisters in the San Francisco area while Albert was living there. And they never found the girls. And then I think he moved back and committed the triple murders in 37, two years after he got back to the Inglewood area. So that's my theory. I mean, I'm that kind of makes it. sense. <laughs> like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I'm going to research it, write a book about it, and that's going to be it. Nobody take my idea? Thank you. <laughs> so I know this is draining you. Aiden is a very empathetic kid, and he is now laying flat down. I can't even see you on Skype. You're like... <laughs> You're like flat on the sorry. ground. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, That's it. We're I done. also have a headache. You made it through it. I know it's a lot. Child murder is not fun. No, it's definitely it's the least fun. All right, all we're time, probably we're uh, that was our probably worst Halloween episode. Okay. Next episode I have coming up for us that we're gonna put out right before Halloween is about I'm calling it the Boogeyman of Los Angeles. And guess who Ooh. it's about? Um. L. Ron Hubbard, Mr. Crazy oh, nice. Scientology Pants. That'll be fun. I always see <laughs> all the Scientology stuff everywhere. Yep, don't do it. All right, guys, thanks for listening. I hope I didn't, I didn't bum anybody out too much, and uh, we'll see you in another couple days when another episode comes out for Halloween. Bye, guys. Bye.